In a world where workplaces are toxic for people and humanity has been squeezed out by outdated rules, how do leaders who care create enlivened workplace cultures? This show has the answers. On Make Work Human, we discuss how companies can meet their mission and make a profit without squeezing the life out of people. The path to how lies in unbreakable connections, clear purpose, and real partnerships that debunk and demolish old mindsets about the world of work. I'm Mo Carrick, and I'm a beekeeper, mother of adults, CEO, culture expert, award-winning entrepreneur, and best-selling author, and I'm joined on this show by my colleague and friend, awesome coach, mother of a toddler, award-winning creative, DEI facilitator, and millennial, May Rats. Together, we tackle teams that gossip, leaders who are bad for people, parenting while working, belonging, and so much more with an irreverent and honest look at what it takes to make every workplace fit for the human beings who work there. We are on a mission to stop the suck and restore humanity to work. This show will warm your heart, challenge your thinking, and leave you laughing out loud. Hi, Mo. Hello, Meg. Good afternoon. On this episode, we're going to talk. We don't. We don't really have a question. It's somewhere in there. Well, maybe we'll get to it as we talk. But what we're here to talk about is money, ambition, and essentially that you and I we work for a lot of reasons, but we work for money. We're just saying it right now. Everybody listening, we work for money. We like to get paid in money. Money, money, money. <laughs> <laughs> Song. There's a lot of songs about money. Well, I think it's really, I, I love, I'm, I'm having this feeling as we, as we approach this podcast episode about talking about money, because I think one of the things that I've sensed in my life and in my career is that like money is one of the things that we as women don't talk about. Um, and yet in the world of work with the work we do with clients all the time, money is a huge topic because employers and leaders are always thinking about how are they paying people, how much uh, what incentives and that kind of thing. And yet I think that there's a whole language of money from the employee perspective, but also from the gender identity perspective that really impacts, um, you know, how we show up in the world. So lastly, I would say that money we know is a huge factor in terms of the great resignation. So this point in time that we are in COVID-19 money is an issue because we're seeing people leave jobs that are minimum wage because they can't make ends meet. So I think it's a great topic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in this. Like it feels very taboo. Can we just say to even say that I work for money that week? I'll check that with you. Maybe that's generational. Well, tell me more like what taboo, because like, does it feel like, oh oh gosh, like we're not supposed to be talking about that. Cause you've mentioned before on this podcast, how as a millennial, you got a really strong message that it was your job to save the world and that the work you were supposed to do was to save the world. So is that connected? Oh, totally. And I do feel that to a certain extent. Remember when I first started working for you or that very first email for those listening, we will do an episode about how the two of us met and the long slog of a mountaineering expedition I took on pretty much to get this job. But I sent essentially a Facebook message that said that I would work for you for free. Right. Let's be clear. I was making $0 somewhere else. <laughs> It wasn't like I was fine. I wasn't. I just knew that I need, I wanted to work with you. And I thought that the best opportunity that I had was to like offer myself up as a unpaid intern. <laughs> so I tried that tactic and it blew up in my face, everyone. So just hear me now, millennials, don't try it. It doesn't work, especially with someone like Mo, because I got an email back that essentially said, I don't have time to meet with you. I am very busy. And... <laughs> we don't work for free. (laughs) I was like, okay. And then it took me a long time to get up the gumption to write her again, her being you Mo. So I think I really say we don't work for free. Yeah. You were like, we don't know. And I, you said, I think if we ever met and I decided to do this, I would for sure pay you because we don't work for free. Okay. And I was like, well, that was embarrassing. Wasn't it? But I, I would have worked for you for free. Yeah. I didn't even know you and I would have worked for you for free because I like what have been grown out of this mentality that we change the world first and then we make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like part of my privilege, right? Like I have large, I have like resources to catch me. 
and other people have grown up with different money wounds around all those things. But I have always thought like, okay, if I can get my foot in the door for free, then this will work out. But like saying, Hey, I'm going to work for you and you're going to pay me this much makes me feel nauseous. Hmm. Even still. (laughs) Yeah. And do you that? Thank you for sharing that with me. And I (laughs) is like, I don't have any memory of saying we don't work for free. I, I remember thinking, well, you clearly have some skills and if I were to take advantage of those skills, I would want to pay you. Like I, 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 but I didn't point A and point B, what's interesting about that is we actually do work for free. Like we do a lot of pro bono work, as you know, as a firm for free, 30% of our time actually is pro bono work. And so that's, so it's not really true that we don't work for free at the same time, we as a firm, but in terms of paying someone for their skills and talents, like I wouldn't want to take advantage of you that way. But I've heard from you and other millennials that that is a common point of entry. You know, the, the whole unpaid intern. I remember my stepson took an unpaid internship. I think each of my kids has at some point um, where like that is the way that you have to get in the door is to work for no money. Wait up. You've never had an unpaid internship? No. Excuse me? No. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. Wait. So all of us have done, I did two unpaid internships, Whoa. six months apiece. What? Um, yeah. And you, you all boomers didn't do that? Well, I didn't, but you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I personally didn't. Now I did work for a very low wage. So, so but not zero. Not zero. No. But I mean, like when I was an hour bound instructor, I think my starting wage was $18 a day. Well, that's pretty much zero. So that's pretty much zero. But actually back then in the day, that was like, you could still support yourself on that to a certain degree. But, but I don't, unpaid internships were not as much of a thing when I was coming up. But, um, but also the other thing is that working for a job that saved the world was also not a big thing. Like, not that we didn't want to save the world, but there was more, it was, there was more pressure when I was young. And I graduated from college in 1980 from graduate school in 89. And so there was an emphasis actually on like um, making money, yeah. getting a job that would make you money. And then if it also happened to do good in the world, like that's awesome. But the pressure wasn't to do good in the world. And then and then if you're lucky, you get paid for it. So I, I think that is an interesting perspective that you are. And such a fast shift. Like we are not the same age, but you are not that much older than me. Okay. Like where there should be that big of a shift. Whoever's in charge of that, we need to talk to you. Call us because you need to be on the podcast. That was messed up that you talked the rest of us into unpaid internships, but you didn't make the boomers do that. Anyways, so, but there's also this divide inside of there about, I want to call my millennial like men friends out. Yeah. And I don't think they necessarily have the same vision of me as me around this. Mm. Some of my millennial men friends are running multi-million dollar companies now mm. they obviously have uh they did not take the same internships i did they didn't have the memo right <laughs> they did not offer their services for free but i don't but i don't know is that do you see that divide inside of boomer men and boomer women and is there like oh, a yeah, there divide of that well there is and i'm very sensitive to like as we talk about perhaps the differences in in perspectives about money and worth i do think that I, I noticed myself lapsing into a little bit of a binary yeah. conversation around yeah. men and women, and I'm aware that it's a non-binary world. And so there totally. are people that identify as neither or both that may not find themselves in this conversation. But I think the historical legacy is binary around the ways in which we are enculturated to talk about money. And for yeah. sure, something I've seen in my coaching practice and, and that I felt myself and I've heard you say as well is that women are not encouraged to talk about money. They're not, in, you know, we're not supported by society at large to sort of name our number, you know, which is why we see women not asking for a salary raise. I remember like an interesting story about that. I was doing a workshop one time. This was quite a few years ago, but I had a group of women, it was in a DEI workshop, but I was with a group of white women who had been in this organization for a long time, many of them for 15, 20 years, they were all executives, probably vice president and above. And one of them said, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this promotion and the salary is this amount. And I said, well, have you considered negotiating that? salary and she looked at me like a deer in headlights she's like no <laughs> yeah she's like well no that's what the salary is and then we went around I'm like have any of you ever asked for more money and they went they're like no 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 we don't do that we're just so grateful to have the job whereas 
in many other places where I've sat with men and when I've watched men approach jobs, they're almost always negotiating for more money or a different compensation package based on how they're enculturated that money is theirs to ask for and to negotiate for. It's like sort of a given. Mm. So I think there's a huge difference about that. And yeah, so let me pause there. Well, I'm really keying in on this that like they feel like money is theirs to ask for. Uh, that's like a very large bend in the river for me to get around um, in my own brain to think about like that there's money out there that is mine to ask for mm. in any circumstance. Yeah. I don't know that I have any answers or really brilliant thing to say about that. Just like that. That is, I've seen that play out yeah. in my own life. Why? Well, let me ask, let me ask a question related to that because it, for me, it ties into a little bit of money and its connection to ambition and or to success. And so like as a baby boomer, one of the things that I can tap into is that, and I'm a young baby boomer, but there I've watched people, colleagues of mine that are my age, associate worth with money. Yeah. Especially men. But I've noticed in my own peer group, I've noticed an extreme amount of discomfort with other women talking about money. Mm -hmm. And I've actually felt very um, kind of, I feel like I've inherited some messages that I shouldn't talk about money, the money I make. And, you know, to the extreme, even in um, relationship to my partners over the years where my income was primary, like my income was supporting everybody or my income was higher. Um, and just kind of not ever mentioning that, just kind of being like, oh, well, yeah, we both work, you know, but not like, yeah, and I make at yeah. least many times his money or our money has afforded our home or whatever that is. And so it's a messaging that's like, don't, you can do anything you want in the world, Mo, but don't talk about your ambition about money or that money is something that motivates you because that's not flattering. That's not pretty. I don't know. I don't know what the meta message is, but I just sort of learned like, don't talk about it. Whereas many of my male colleagues talk with each other about what they're making, how they've negotiated that, what their package is in terms of compensation. So I don't know how that plays out in, in that millennials. Well, wouldn't you, before I like launch into that, wouldn't you yeah. think, don't you think that's the same thing as I just said about like how I like have swapped money and saving the world. Yeah. And then what did you swap it with? If you can't talk about your ambition around money, then what's your ambition for going to work? When like, what were you supposed to talk about? Oh, that's such a good question. Because here's what I think happened to me. And <laughs> was it wasn't so much about changing the world. The messaging that I remember having as a younger worker was independence. Independence. Yes. But even more than that was like, um, you want to work. Oh, like, I feel like I got a lot of messages like you're choosing to work because of women's liberation. Oh, my right? God, you're choosing to work. And that was particularly true when I was a young mother. You should be because they, like people would say, oh, so you're choosing to work. And I remember being like, I don't, I mean, <laughs> I'm I, mean <laughs> I mean, I do choose to work because my, I choose to have a home for my family and to have the rent be paid and to have food on the table and to be able to have a few little luxuries that's that but is that really like a choice like I never embedded in my consciousness like that's a choice I just thought that's what you do you partner you and your partner both contribute to the economic security of your family and I remember feeling such resentment about like this is being presented as if this is a big old choice that I made and then and therefore it was like oh a choice you made as opposed to like oh that money is part of you being a good parent oh whoa right because i think men but men get attributed to like well you're working you're you have ambition you're taking care of your family good job right but i don't feel that's now i do now like later now that my children are grown i feel i can sit with comfort and i know that i've contributed economically to the success of my kids and being able to college and i can feel like oh yeah i did that good for me with with my partners but it's taken me years to get yeah. over that guilt like as if i made i was making some horrible choice as opposed to what i now can center on which is like no when women choose to work they're choosing economic security for their children just like the men are and that too is a good thing that brings me to this piece about like wealth yeah. specifically maternal wealth and that it is so quiet and we probably talked about this in the motherhood episode I think but yeah. I was just talking to my mom who um she just bought herself a new car for the first mm. time for the first time and like uh the last car that she bought for herself was a Toyota Tercel so for everyone on the internet the Toyota Tercel is like the most classic ter like Toyota car you can see now 
Um, that's what I grew up with, but my mom chose that for herself and bought it for herself. Right. That was in before I was born. So mm. the early eighties and then it's 2022 and she just chose a new car for herself and bought it for herself. And she was feeling some sort of way about it. Mm. And we had this discussion where I was like, you just showed me to spend my maternal wealth. You know, like that's what the maternal wealth can also be used for, for yeah. yourself. Mm-hmm. that we hardly ever see women encouraged to want something yeah, because that means that women are lacking somehow in order to want something. Mm-hmm. So then they want something and they buy it with the money mm-hmm. that they have. And why is that so bad? Right. That's like, Oh, that you made a lot of money. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, I made a lot of money and I want to make a lot of money. Right. Like, and that's got to be okay. If that's not okay, then like, I don't think we've made as large strides strides on equity as we think we have. I think you're right. And also I've been noticing Jeff Bezos's uh, ex-wife, you know, has been contributing a lot of money in her, in her pro bono, in her um, philanthropic efforts. And it's really impressive. But I'm noticing like the times when we get to hear about women and wealth is when they give it all away. Totally. And our philanthropists, and oftentimes that's wealth that they gained from a marriage, right? Um, You know, being a widow or being divorced, and then they have that wealth and then they give it all away and we adulate them as opposed to like, how many women do you know who are successful women that are famous, let's say, who also are really wealthy, and we acknowledge them. There are some stars, you know, Oprah and Beyonce, for sure. We're like, yeah, these women are rolling in dough because they worked hard, but it's rare. Totally. And it's never messaged like, it's never messaged that we should be like Oprah in that we should be wealthy. Right. It's that we should be so caring. We should be so empathetic. We should be so open to the world and like taking people in. Not that like, wow, look at how much money she made. She must be so successful at business. Right. That is now coming out. But those, that nuance of that conversation has taken a long time. I feel like it has taken a long time. And, and I I really, that's one of the reasons I really appreciate some of the work of Rachel Rogers, you know, world who talks about, you know, we should all be millionaires. And Rachel does such a beautiful job at connecting in particular black maternal or black women wealth to being able to have enough money to afford a good life for you and your family and and your community but also to be able to get back and to be able to change the world to have because money is power yeah in in so many ways she makes that connection really powerfully and i just love that and and it like validates economic ambition you know around money for women too not only for men I mean, do you think that the weirdness around money in our society has to do with that money is power and that if we give women too much power, they might do something wild with it. <laughs> so we don't encourage them to do that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, is it that is it like if we give them too much money to be power or is it more like we expect them to be dependent financially? So we just we just don't talk about or, or it's un, or it's unflattering. Yeah. Women having a lot of money is unflattering. You know, and I think that's, and I'm not blaming that on men. I think women to women yeah. shaming also contributes to that. Totally. You know, comparative shaming where women are like, well, she drives that fancy car or she gets her nails done every week or, you know, she's wearing Gucci or whatever, like as if that's a bad thing when really yeah. what would happen if we were instead like, oh my God, she makes enough money. She can afford that. That's so cool. What is she doing to earn that money? Right. Like, that's awesome. You know, but that's, and I think that's the adulation that we sometimes give on the gender binary. We give men more credit for if they are ambitious, whereas women, if they are ambitious, they get a lot more shunning or they're asked to be quieter about that. Totally. Yeah. It's very becoming. So what's the deal with you employers and money, (laughs) right? Like like there's so much, there's so, there's all this nuance around money. There's all this stuff. I'm just going to admit this right now. Like the negotiating for a salary is very mysterious. <laughs> All right. Like, are we supposed to just take it? Are we supposed to negotiate? Are we supposed to go negotiate way high? Are y'all trying to rip us off? Are you going for a low number? What's going on? Do you wish we were all unpaid interterns? We all were at some point. Is what I just I you all were. I love all oh, of Oh, God. So I think it's a super good question, and I will answer it. But before I answer it, <laughs> I want to ask you this question. As an employee, what assumptions did you enter? Let's just use our, our working relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You work for Momentum now. When you entered our relationship, what were the assumptions you made about the, the, the discussions we had about salary? Oh, I was just going to take whatever you gave me. 
Okay. I was going to be happy with whatever you gave me above and beyond $0 was awesome because I just wanted the job so bad. Um, I also felt like because of the size of your firm, it was not, it was non-negotiable that like, you must need that, like the person, otherwise you would just keep doing it the way that you were doing it. Mm -hmm. And who was I to ask for more money than that? Um, I also trusted since we are in the business of what we are in that you, if there was a raise to be given, you would give it to me based off of my own merit and based off of my own work. I also knew that I could like go above and beyond so that you would see that I was going to like, I was going to under promise over deliver like the whole way across this football field. Yeah. So that's like, that was my plan. And, and the number you offered me was more money than I had ever made in my life. So seeing well, that on me, <laughs> I, I just okay, told you, we got to talk about this. I know. So I, I was feeling like so thankful and mm-hmm. I didn't know how to negotiate out. I didn't feel like I can negotiate out of a hole I'd never been in. I was right. like, just happy to be at the place. And who was I to go on the internet and be like, well, you know, actually everybody else is getting paid this much. Like, I don't know those people. I'm just yeah. glad to have this job. Right. Oh my gosh, you you reminded me of a friend of mine who graduated from medical school, medical school, (laughs) and she got a job and it was a good, you know, it was a good salary, but she couldn't believe how much they offered her, you know, and she was like, oh my God, I can't, because she had been living as a med school student for so many years. And then like three years later, she realized what other doctors were making. (laughs) And she was like, what the heck? You know, and I think that happens to women a lot. Yeah, they say yeah. They're just so grateful to have the job. We're like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you. And then we are happy because it's meaningful work or it's a place we really want to be. And it feels it's connected to like we just feel good about that. And the money sort of becomes like an extra thing, almost as if like, well, it would be bad or unflattering. If I, I am hearing I'm hearing a meta message under what you're saying, which is yeah. like, well, if I pushed you for the money, you might have said no. Yeah. No, that's no meta message. <laughs> That would be my next sentence. Yes, for sure. I wanted this job so bad that I would not, I was not going to risk losing it, which is also very funny now that like, I know you and I also know our business, like we would have had more conversation about it, but I didn't know that. Like, that's what I'm asking you right now is like, is there more conversation to be had around money from employers or is that what it is? Yeah, I don't know if that I can. I don't know if I can answer every employer, but here's what I do think. Here's what I do <laughs> please, think please do. I, well, I think from as an employer and as a business owner, what I know to be true, and as a consultant, right, what I know to be true is that salaries is are usually the biggest, most expensive item, right? For most businesses, it's the cost of labor that is the most expensive. So it's significant in terms of our bottom line. So when we look at our top line, that's the money we make, right? Our total income, let's say. Um, or our gross revenue, then we have to hold our gross revenue against what does it cost us to run this business? And then we, then that's how, that's what we call profit, right? In a very basic way. (laughs) So I think payroll or what we're going to pay people, how much can I pay? And I know I need to pay fairly, right? I, I know I need to pay fairly. Most employers I think do understand that and they try to understand what will the market bear. But at the same time, because it's usually the most expensive item in our expense category, we have to manage it by keeping it fair, but also enough to not affect our profitability, or if we're running a nonprofit or a government agency, just our ability to, you know, grow our business, right? Because even a nonprofit has to make money, they invest it back in the business, they just don't get taxed on. So it is a factor. But I don't think that means that it's like a constant unrelenting negotiation. Like, I don't know very many employers who are like, if I can get that labor cheap, I'm going to do it. I think it's, (laughs) you know, although historically, that was probably the case. And I suppose it is, I say that, but then I'm like, well, it probably is still the case around things like migrant workers in agriculture. Right. We know here in North America, in, U, in the USA, we, have, we are able to have affordable food in part because the labor that comes labor. in that our migrant labor from Mexico in particular is cheaper yeah. than labor that is American citizens. So that contradicts what I'm saying a little bit, yeah. right? Um, And so in order for that problem to be solved, we have to increase the price of food. And so but but separate from those kinds of situations, I think that most most companies pick a salary range. They say this is what I think is fair. And then they make that offer. Now, oftentimes an employee will come back and say, you know, that won't work for me. 
either I've been working in this field a long time or I have special credentials and so I would like something more. And then I think it can become a negotiation or maybe the employer says, you know, maybe they can't uptick their salary, but they can give something else like extra time off or whatever. So I, I think it is probably more negotiable than most candidates, especially the female ones may think. And the young ones, why not just offer the top of the range with all the benefits and get it over with? Because it's expensive. It's the know, most- but, if, but if you know that there's going to be negotiation. Well, because you can still get, you can, you can be more successful sometimes in growing your business if you can get the talent for less. And, you know, just to be concrete, like if I, if I paid all of you, I think I pay well. I think we pay yes. pretty well. And I think I offer good incentives and stuff like that. But by the same token, if I paid you the maximum pay range that all of you were like worth as humans and all the benefits and retirement, I would really struggle. Momentum might struggle to either have money to reinvest in the business or to make our profit number. And so yeah. I'm, I'm constantly navigating that in my business practice, which is like, can I, how would I pay you fairly and make sure this really works for your life, but also make sure that we're profitable. And sometimes the way I think about it, I don't know if all business owners think about it, but I think about it this way. If there's no business, there's no payroll. So I gotta make sure, it's my job to make sure that the net revenue is enough to make sure that these jobs stay. And I think that's something employees often don't understand when they get mad, like I'm being paid too little. They make it as if the employer doesn't want to pay them. It's like, well, yeah, but if there wasn't a company, you wouldn't have a job. Do you, this is aside from the like money and matriarchal wealth and millennials and women and all the things, but you as a business owner, do you feel like you work for you or you work for us? Like, do you work to like, put jobs into the system and like have this team and grow, especially because your team is all millennials. We, you are our incubator, essentially. Are you working for us or are you working for you? (laughs) It's a good question. Both, both. I mean, one of the biggest, one of the things I am proud about in terms of my own business, and I think a lot of employers feel this way, is I do feel proud that our business supports for families. Yeah. Not completely because you have partners and I have a partner, you know, but in part, I'm building, I'm helping support the community of, and more than that, actually, when you think of our vendors and our other strategic partners. So I, economically, I feel good about that. Like, yes, I want this business to thrive so that there's more good jobs, that more people can have a good quality life with work that they enjoy to to create a good life for their families. I feel good about that. That that was not the case when I was a sole proprietor. When I was a sole proprietor, it was just me and and my family needs. And I I liked that too, because it was like, there's more, there's more money coming to me then, but it wasn't as rewarding. I also couldn't do as much as I could do now. So one of the reasons we scale a business is because we can't actually scale by ourselves as entrepreneurs. I don't think anybody can. So then it becomes like where we can actually contribute to the world in a bigger way. And most company owners, most CEOs and or company owners that I've worked with talk at some point to me about the responsibility they feel for the communities and families that they support that in terms of jobs they're aware like these jobs help people economically yeah yeah I mean that makes sense to me do you think it's harder for you to have a conversation around money with women and other historically marginalized people or with men well women don't usually bring it up (laughs) well there's that So I think we should tell the story about our incentive pay process (laughs) because, and I mean, I'll just maybe use that as an example. We, a couple of years ago, it was right before COVID, I think that I had decided that one of the ways that I wanted to um, help us grow and scale the business was by building in some incentives so that we could lift our top line. And I felt I had this opinion, like if you all had some skin in the game, it would be more likely to build our top line. So I put that out there in a staff meeting and I said, can you all come back with some ideas of what would be right incentive for you because it's differing for the roles in our company. And our one male employee, Cameron, came right back quickly. To me. Like <laughs> he had three ideas and he had numbers that were connected to them. And the rest of the team who were people who identified as women didn't, didn't say anything. Didn't even respond for years. Did not say anything. <laughs> knocked on your door and said like let's talk about an incentive and I think by the time we did it it was basically like you had already earned it and so I said well I'll just pay you retroactively you already <laughs> earned it. 
I never knew what my incentive was to be quite honest for two years, because I just decided that I was just going to work really hard. And then if you found that I was useful, then you would pay me the incentive anyways. It's all coming out now, y'all. Mo and I have not had this conversation, so here it is. But you were were like the wish and prayer (laughs) philosophy. You were like wish and prayer. No, I was the trust and like trust and see camp. And Cameron was like, she told us to tell her, so I'm gonna tell her. And I was like, I don't even know where to start there, so I'm just not gonna do it. (laughs) That just didn't make sense in my brain. I I don't know. It didn't make sense that I would decide how much my incentive would be. And as I like dig into this, maybe it's because you saying no to the thing that I brought you would feel really painful Mm. because I would take it personally. So I was like, I can either just take what I have, which is great. And then Mm -hmm. if she like loves me, (laughs) she loves me enough. She'll give me some money (laughs) at the end of Christmas. It's great. (laughs) Which (laughs) like, just to reinforce that mindset did happen. So I was like, well, all right, great. That worked, right? So your, your <laughs> philosophy worked because you said nothing and then at the end of the month, you got a big pile of cash. Yeah, yeah. So pray tell, where did I go wrong? Because oh I God. feel like that was a good method. I'm well, just joking for all those moments out there. Well, but it was, a, it was a good method. And I think it's probably one that many people can relate to. Yeah. And what we actually learned, that whole process for me was interesting because what we learned as a company was that the incentives actually were not a primary motivator for any of them, including <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody. It was better to say, and part of that is because they were a little bit hard to track and there was a lot of overlap between the incentives. So we ended up saying, you know what, let's raise base pay um, to include incentives basically. Yeah. And that felt right to the team. And we were in a financial position where that was more reasonable to to do, you know, two years down the path. But I think it raises a powerful, piece that you're saying that could have a gender dynamic or could be a millennial dynamic or could be just an employee to employer dynamic, which is it's really hard to talk about compensation because it connects to worth. Yeah. And relationship. I think that's like the other breaker for me is that I, I would rather stay at the place that I'm at if I can make my ends meet than like risk breaking the relationship between you and I for some money rift. And that might be my own money wound. Maybe no one else has that one. And that's really wonderful. Thank you, everybody. You know, it's just worth that much to me. And you are paying, like, that just tells me that you weren't paying me nothing in the beginning, right? That I could even have that mindset. Right. But it, there is the, there was this tweet that was circulating for a while of this um, hiring manager who said that she offers the lowest on the scale. And if that person takes it, she just gives it to him. That's like what she does. And that there was some talk around like that. She felt like maybe I could help him out by being like, you should negotiate because she worked for a large company. And like, you know, she had the the movement to be able to do that. And she said, if they don't have the ambition or the like gumption essentially to ask for it, and they haven't been educated around that, then they don't deserve it. And all these tweets back were like, what? There is no education out here about how to negotiate, especially as a historically marginalized person and especially in a place of power like that. So you just left them out to dry, you know, and I've been thinking about that tweet a lot that there that we do work for money. It is important. And if you aren't making enough money that you still have to go find a way to make enough money and then you're not going to do that work at the place that you work. Does that make sense? Well, and doesn't that just hurt that place? Well, yeah. And also it makes me think about like that. There's some mythology we build up about that. The worst possible thing is that someone says, no, you know, it's like, well, someone says, no, let's say you had said to me, I think I'm worth this amount. And I said, well, no, like that to you, that would mean a lot more than like, oh, what that would mean to me as the employer, like, no, I can't pay you that. Now I probably would also say, but I could do this. Like, could we negotiate and give you more time off? Could I give you a benefit? Could I, because if I want you to work with me, I'm gonna try to find a package that works. Yeah. Um, but but my no does not have anything to do necessarily with your skill. It has to do with what I can afford to keep the business healthy. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of employees or candidates get themselves confused. Totally, yeah. yeah. I think that's a miscommunication on total massive fronts. Yeah. And also just to be clear, we're not talking about places like Amazon and like the mega places, right? Like salary negotiations inside of those systems are far different than what you and I are discussing. Yeah. Like small to mid-sized companies are like dealing with top line numbers that are very different. 
Very different. And it's also, there's a lot less rigor around things like comparative pay scaling. And also, to be honest, like the big five tech companies, especially but really large corporations have a lot more resources that they can throw at the employee equation in terms of cash and non-cash compensation. So yeah. it's like easy. There's just more chips that you can negotiate. Whereas I think for small employers, it's a lot tighter around what you can negotiate. Some small employers don't offer health insurance or don't have retirement. And, or, yeah. you know, and are, so there's like less cards on the table. But I think the connection of money and worth is something that we all have to battle with a little bit and um and be able to ask ourselves the questions around you know i am it's it's a paradox isn't it it's like i am worth yeah. their pay yeah and if someone that i want to work for can't pay me that i'm still worth it yeah right but now i have to make a decision do i am i willing to work for that amount even though i know i'm worth more and i think there are times in our lives when we make that decision and it's okay you know, when early in my career, when I worked as a wilderness guide, I made a decision to work for less than I could have if I went to work somewhere else because I wanted a particular lifestyle that made sense to me at that time, a very transient lifestyle. I didn't actually have to pay rent, you know, and I wanted the adventure of it all, you know, and sometimes we make those choices and we can at certain stages of our life. But what I think is really important is that we understand and talk through what are my money needs and how does that connect to my identity the money situation too is so interesting from like a boomer and millennial just generation in general of what we have like did you have a bunch of student loans when you took your first job yeah i did um yeah. i did have student loans and so i had to and that's like a wild thing yeah. to like start with a very large bill when you don't really know how to negotiate for money well it's hard it's hard like, that's like an impossible situation. It is. And that was one, you know, going back like full circle, that was one of my primary motivators as a parent was like, I want to make enough money that my children do not have to have college debt. Yeah. Of any kind. And they don't. Woohoo. But yeah, but that was like hard. <laughs> That's a lot of money. I have three children. Now one <laughs> has not completed college yet. So we'll see. <laughs> no, we still count it. There. They don't have debt right now so right. that's true success but i yeah. think that's you know i think that's something that we have to think about now you asked a question that i successfully evaded which was like is it harder to talk about money with members oh. of marginalized groups or with men or with men i think it's such a good question I'll, I'll have to think a little bit about it what i think in terms of myself i think that i'm probably a bit more um sensitive to the money conversation with underrepresented candidates um, because of historical inequities. And I, because I'm committed to being anti-racist, providing equality in our system, I, will, I, I do a fair amount of like data checking to make sure that I'm paying fairly and that kind of thing. So I think I'm probably a bit more attenuated to those voices. I'm also aware that, for example, as a white person, as a white employer, a person of color might feel more, more intimidated to ask me about worth, who's a yeah. woman, for example, a black woman might have more trouble. I don't know if she will, but I might make that up. Like she may have more trouble asking for more money. Um, but let's say she didn't, let's say a woman of color applied and was asking for more money than I was willing to pay. I do think that would be hard for me to then be like, ah, I really want to hire you. You're really awesome. And that's not a pay that I can afford. And yeah. that because now I'm like, am I like repeating a systemic dynamic? I I'm trying to formulate this question in terms of where boomers and millennials intersect on this money and ambition thing. And it's interesting to me that we might actually have the same, we might've been sold the same Kool-Aid. I know that's not the same, but I think we were from your story and from mine that we have to interchange money, the ambition for money with the ambition for something else. Not that we don't have the, that other ambition, but that it's very uncouth to say like, I work to make a lot of money, right? Like I'm here to make hay. That's, yeah. I wonder in your boomer circles, when you talk to other CEOs or C-suites, like does that just fall in importance? Are you not discussing that? Like how much money we made or how much money you're making in a year or how much revenue your company is making? Is it not a badge of honor anymore? Or is it? Is it just different? 
My gosh, here's what came up for me as you were talking. I think in my circle historically, it's just been something that I don't get invited to talk about. Mm. My male colleagues, I think, talk about it and they make a lot of assumptions about each other. You know, CEOs based on how much they make and what what artifacts of wealth they might have. But I think for me as a woman, like nobody really asks. They they don't. It's not something we talk about. I think, you know, I've been married to Jim now for 13 years. Woody and I were married for 18 years. Um, most of the people that we interacted with socially, I think they always assumed that my partner's income was how we had a home and um, things mm. like that. I don't think they necessarily, I mean, I don't think they necessarily just made the assumption that that was me. <laughs> Or that I contributed to that. So I just think it goes unspoken that the wealth is attributed to the man. That's what I see. Now that's changing. And I've been really fortunate to have some mentors who are women executives and women leaders and women coaches who have been much more honest and transparent about like their desire to have wealth and to pass on generational wealth. And so it's become more much easier to talk about with some of those women for sure um, and not have to pretend that that's like not really what's happening. But I still don't think it's always considered savory. Yeah, it's like impolite. Mm-hmm. It's really intriguing because it's still few and far between. I think we are in a very special circle of women that you like are coached by and are colleagues with that can have those conversations. No, and I want to ask, I want to ask actually my male colleagues and friends, including my husband and my brother, like what goes on for men? Because I think what goes on with men actually is that it's not talked about either. It's just assumed. Yeah. And so I think I see men, I see this with some of my, you know, with my son, for example, I see it with some um, young millennial men that I know where they feel a tremendous amount of struggle about not having the artifacts of financial success because they are men they feel like they should have this financial success even though they're happy in their lives like they're doing something they love or they have a good relationship and they feel successful in that way but there's still i think a lot of pressure yeah to be the bread earner and to be having the artifacts of wealth yeah i I think that must be very difficult in the culture of men and you know i'm sure if my husband were here and i asked him he'd be like oh yeah we just size each other up What shoes are you wearing? What watch are you wearing? What car are you driving? And now I know. Yeah. I mean, I've always wondered if that seems very, by always, I mean, like the last 10 years, I've always wondered if that feels very looming doom for my male colleagues of that. Like, as soon as you get the job, you better start running on that treadmill because you're supposed to be making 150 K or whatever you're, you're supposed to be making. Yeah. I don't even know what the number is. See, I have no idea, but like, is that uncomfortable? Or does that feel like, wow, you might never get there? Oh my gosh. Or you must get there. Yeah. I think for a lot of the men that I've talked with, that feels like a terrible amount of pressure. And and then it it gets complicated with regard to building a family. If their partner, if their partner is a woman and has a child or if they adopt a child or whatever, I think there's a lot of pressure that the breadwinning should happen from them. And then they feel trapped sometimes. Um, in a way that I don't think we as women always get to hear about because it's just like, it's just expected. Totally. Yeah. And I don't hear a lot of my millennial women friends saying that they want to make a lot of money. I hear a few of them, but that's definitely not a conversation. And no one that I know is really comparing salaries. Right. That is still not a thing. Even though that's so hot to talk about online, like we should all compare their salaries. That's such a great thing that we should do. Let me just say, we're not, we're not out here doing that (laughs) and maybe we should, but we're not. No, but I think you're right. And I think that there's this taboo-ness about money that is really tough. How much money is a lot of money. And, And I also think, I wonder too, about the ethos of the world right now in terms of there's so many big problems in the world with climate change and racism and our recent political upheaval and SCOTUS. And I wonder if sometimes just like making money just ends up feeling very trivial from a salary perspective, like to, to what is happening with the greater world. And yet for me, like, I feel like I sit in that paradox myself because I feel it, but I also feel like, yeah, but business is a part of how we be in society together we live in a capitalist society so we we need to i feel like we still need to be able to talk about money our relationship to it how we earn it how we give it away you know how we use it to build security and care for the people that we love in the communities that we have i was struck when we were on vacation may with the roosevelt legacy 
you know, we were driving on the Roosevelt Highway from you know, Grand Teton to Yellowstone and they have had, the Roosevelt family has had such an impact, for example, just one place is the national parks and of our country, which are, you know, in my opinion, some of the treasures of our of our universe are the United States National Parks. And I'm like, wow, the, the Roosevelt family did a good thing when they did that, you know? Mm -hmm. And now that I'm not saying that everything the Roosevelt's did was good, because I'm sure it isn't. Um, but that thing has yeah. affected society in a big way. Yeah. And the larger conversation is around enoughness, how we have skewed the scales to enoughness or not. But one of the things I hope to learn from like many of my boomer friends, you included, is how to have more conversations around money that are not attached to per, attached to personal worth and especially in business because it can feel quickly like it's one for themselves which i think is why it feels like if you say no it has something to do with me as opposed to it has to do with us you know and can we make the conversation around money especially between boomers and millennials to be quite honest about us like there are large problems in the world that are going to require all of us doing what we can with the resources that we have, but we can't do that if it's just the one of us, <laughs> you know, and if it's like someone is the gatekeeper to all the money and, you know, and there's no, there's no bridges being built. So I'm hopeful that we can have that conversation as like generations to just like the money isn't about worth money's about getting stuff done. Well, yes. And also as a boomer, I feel pressure with my own employees, including you, to make sure you understand, and this is, I think, a challenge for businesses large and small, how do I help help my employees understand and be transparent about what the business really costs? You know, because I think it's easy to be like, I'm worth more money, at, at, but then to be like, yes, and this yeah. business is only capable of paying this amount. And so, but to your point, what I love is then, then we just have a problem that's in front of us, not between us. Totally. Like, okay, let's talk about this, you know? And answer one could be, make more money, figure out a way to have the company make more money. Another could be that we bring in someone else and we both work part-time or, you know, whatever, like there's a way that we can negotiate that. But I think the point that you're making is the conversation. Now on that note, I wanted to mention one thing. I know we probably need to wrap, but could we just talk for a minute about minimum wage? Yeah. Uh, how it's very minimum. It's very minimum. And I've been thinking. <laughs> Is that what the conversation you would like to have or a larger one? Well, and I think that I think about like, so when I was working for minimum wage early in my career, I started working at age 14 and I worked at a cool. restaurant. I think I made a dollar 35 an hour, you know, plus tips. And I worked in, in food services for a number of years through college and stuff. And, and I made minimum wage and I could do that because I was a dependent on my parents at that point, or I was funding college, you know, and I could, I could do that. And I think there is a place where that could be done. I think there's a, there's also some people in retirement who can live on a minimum wage, or if I'm working part-time, maybe, I, maybe I'm doing it to supplement income. There are places where a minimum wage can be, can work for people, but it doesn't work for people that are supporting themselves or their families independent. Yeah. It, at, in our current structure. And I think COVID has just illuminated that so, so strongly. For so sure. I think it's something we as employers have to really get, get more real about is, you know, are these jobs capable of supporting people? Do they need to, you know, a golf caddy on a summer golf course, maybe doesn't need to support a family because there's people who are willing to do that job who can, because they're in high school, you know, yeah. but but do we need, are our golf caddies actually people that are supporting their families on this job? And then if that's the case, we probably can't, we got to build a business model that transcends minimum wage. For sure. And get real about what happens if all the minimum wage workers go away. Like we saw a whisper of that happen and it had massive shockwaves in the system. Like there was like NPR articles about it for months, right? It's like, no one wants to do these dishes. No one wants to make these beds. No one wants, you know, and then it's all of a sudden, like all those people that were making beds, they were like, why don't you go get another job, get a better job, get a better job. And then when it was like, they're not here, we're like, wait a minute, come back here, come do this job for $8 an hour. You know, I think, yeah, when you see those graphs of, of what minimum, what it takes to just have an apartment in whatever city, you know, and I'm like always shocked by looking at Seattle or you know, San Francisco or whatever, but I, those, those numbers are shocking. The other, the other numbers that I think are more shocking are the ones that are in like Cincinnati that are still high. They're very high. And it's, they haven't had those, you know, the adjustments to minimum wage that like Washington has or Seattle. 
So yeah, what happens when they go away? It's not good. Right. What what does happen? Well, our society, as we know, it begins to come apart at the seams a little bit. I was really proud of one of our clients, Mosaic Medical, who during COVID made a strategic decision that the CEO, Megan Hayes, drove, but supported by the board and the executive team, which was to pay their entry-level CNAs $20 an hour, which Mm. is far above minimum here. And they did that because they were not able to attract the CNAs that they need. The CNAs are a critical part in the medical structure. Now that's a that was an expensive choice that they're a community health center. So they've got a they've had to design their business model in such a way that over the course of the next three or four years they'll recoup those millions, which is what it actually costs. But I really appreciated that they thought about that yeah. and that it was a business imperative to have CNAs in their system. And so then we've got to design the business to do that. Yeah. And I think that's what that's the work that I think we have to do together. Um, and it's not as easy as just saying, well, we never pay minimum wage, but more like, how are we gonna organize our society such that, that we don't suffer the consequences for a minimum wage when it is no longer working, like in that example. And to the point of the seven things you need from work, $20 an hour being high above minimum wage makes me sure that you value me. Right. Right. Like, okay. This job matters. Got it. And you just, you know, killed two birds with one stone. It's going to cost you millions, but you just made sure that somebody feels valued. Well, totally. And then some long-term CNAs who were poised to leave in our small community because they could get paid more elsewhere and they were able to choose to stay. And of course, and this is maybe a good place to close, although it's a bit depressing, but I think one of the things I'd love to talk to you more about, and it's something I'm aware of right now, and it ties to this question of like money and worth and work, is the growing wealth disparity that we see in our nation, which is Mm -hmm. really, really um, causing so many problems. And we can't solve that just by making workplaces that are fit for human life. But I do think organizations are going to have a key role in how we really do solve wealth disparity, or at least make it turn around a little bit from the consequences that it's causing right now. I think it'll have a bigger impact than we think I do if too. workplaces do it because we spend the most time here. Yeah, we do. And business leads our economy. So if businesses can figure it out and get less gap between their lowest paid and their highest paid employees, then we are solving it right here yeah. in our businesses. Right yeah. Here. Well, Mo, good job. Thanks for meeting with me. Thank you. Thanks for talking about one of the taboos. (laughs) I wish you would sing this song again. (laughs) I gotta go study that song. (laughs) Bye.